This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. We're introducing a new mini-series within the larger Norman conquest of England bend in the narrative. We're sticking around William and the conquest, don't worry, but I'm excited for the next handful of episodes as we wrap this whole bend up here soon. First, though, I wanted to mention that the Patreon episodes are beginning to stack up. We have up and published now 13. We have a whole series on Poland's 11th century and a handful of episodes filling in some gaps in the public podcast's Norman Conquest of England series. You can join our Patreon group and support the show for as low as $1 per month and enjoy these episodes. I encourage you to do so as it will allow me to hopefully create more and more content for your entertainment and educational enjoyment. Okay, sorry for the plug. Back to it here. Today's episode, episode 94, is entitled, Everybody Hates Will, The Revolt of the Earls. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Let's see. By 1066, William was hated by the kings of France, the Counts of Anjou, the people of Maine, the nobility of Brittany, and for a spell during his youth, his very own noblemen in Normandy. We can't forget that he might have actually beaten his future wife into marriage, in her father's own home to boot. Beyond 1066, well, none of that really changed. Not really, except to add the entire kingdom of England to his growing list of haters. But by the year 1077, he would add someone very close to him to the list, but we'll hold off on that one until the end of this episode to figure out who it was. Now, it's worth mentioning that William, in the year 1077, was only turning 50 years old, or thereabouts. Now, for the time, that wasn't exactly young, and given the life that William had lived, that's damn near a miracle. And I'm not going for hyperbole here. But let's center ourselves first. On Patreon episode 13, we discussed some of the drama going on back on the continent in the early 1070s. Between Normandy losing the county of Maine to Anjou and Flanders both going through major shifts in their leadership, both assuredly anti-William, I should add, William was watching his walls closing in just a bit. Sure, England after 1070 was more or less quieted and cowed, but the king wasn't exactly allowed to rest. He endured years of random battling in and along the marches of Maine, trying to gain that county back under his control, and he eventually succeeded. While William was in Normandy and Maine, he heard word of his northern marches coming under pressures of his northern neighbor, the Kingdom of Scotland. Remember, the Scottish King Malcolm III, or Malcolm Kenmore as he's known, was by this time married to Edgar Etheling's sister, Margaret. See, the English marches between the Kingdom and Scotland were, well, they were pretty wishy-washy. As Magnus Magnuson writes in his tome called Scotland, the Story of a Nation, quote, At this time, there was no recognized borders between the kingdoms of Scotland and England, end quote. Now, Magnuson then invokes a name we haven't heard on the podcast for quite some time, Earl Seward of Northumbria. Remember that guy? It's been just over 20 years since Seward died in battle with no reasonable heir, Uh, in light of William's horrific behavior in the winter of 1069-70 in the north, Magnuson writes, quote, 
Once again, the events in England were to provide an opportunity for an ambitious and energetic King of Scots. Now, the idea of a Scottish incursion into England wasn't new for Malcolm. When he was a young man, remember, he was helped by Earl Seward to overcome King Macbeth. Yes, from history, by the way and rise to the throne of Scotland. In 1061, when Earl Tostig Godwinson was in charge of Northumbria, Malcolm took a turn at Northern England. Nothing much came of it, but it helped to solidify his position in amongst the rough-and-tumble world of Scottish politics. He would, by the end of his life in 1093, well, Malcolm would lead at least five invasions of England. Now, in the year 1070, Malcolm III, through his marriage to Edgar Etheling's sister, Margaret, would take a page out of William's book, much like it's rumored that Swain Esterson of Denmark did a year earlier and claimed that the Kingdom of England should be his. Remember, Edgar Etheling wasn't just a declared King of England way back in 1066, but he was also of the bloodline of Alfred, by the way, of his grandfather, the legendary Edmund Ironsides. I mean, it was about as strong as William's claim, to be honest, short of William, you know, killing King Harold Godwinson on the battlefield. I mean, he'll always have that, I guess. So yeah, in 1070, Edgar Etheling convinced Malcolm of invading Northumbria. But as Magnuson says, quote unquote, it did little more than add to the cruel devastation of Yorkshire. As soon as Anjou was subdued on the continent and Maine was brought back into the Norman fold, William returned to England to deal with the northern aggression that was Scotland. As is William's way, he didn't just order others to run up north and fight and die at his expense. No, William organized his own army, at this point, consisting mainly of Norman knights and English conscripts, and marched north to meet the ex-king and his Scottish benefactor. Magnuson writes, quote, In 1072, he invaded Scotland with a large, well-organized army, supported by a fleet. It was the first full-scale invasion of Scotland since Roman times. End quote. Let that moment sink in, shall we? The first full-scale invasion of Scotland in over 500 years. Magnuson narrates this perfectly. Quote, William marched through Lothian and across the river Forth at Stirling and went on to the river Tay. Malcolm realized that his own forces were no match for the powerful host of Norman knights and men-at-arms and refused to give battle. Frustrated by Malcolm's delaying tactics, William offered to talk terms at Abernethy on the Tay. End quote. So what did this peace treaty say exactly? Well, first of all, let's just acknowledge the obvious. Just knowing the recent history of how William's invasion of Anglo-Saxon England had played out, it was no doubt the best decision for Malcolm III to sue for, for a speedy peace with the conqueror. The last decade was evidence enough as to how it would most likely end up. No mention of William's life pre-1066 need be considered here. But here's the interesting thing about the meeting between Malcolm III and William I at Abernethy. Was it simply about an end to hostilities between the two kingdoms? Or was it about something deeper? 
something far more expansive in its core idea. Something, as Magnuson puts it, that, quote, would remain a bone of contention between English and Scots constitutional lawyers for centuries to come, end quote. See, the treaty was more than what it seems on the surface. This one treaty between King William I of England and King Malcolm III of Scotland would be brought back time and time again as a first step toward the English suzerainty over Scotland. Now, I don't pretend to know how and why things played out between then and now between England and Scotland. I mean, that's precisely the reason I've tackled this podcast. I want to see all of these fascinating old world stories unfold just like you. The old world to the new world, as we here in the States refer to it. That transition isn't really focused on at all. As the character Ron Swanson said on the American TV series Parks and Rec, outstanding show by the way, in a tongue-in-cheek reference to the American attitude toward history, he says, uh, history began on July 4th, 1776. Everything before that was a mistake. But the events in Abernethy, Scotland in 1072 is yet another reason why we can't just overlook the Middle Ages in order to understand our modern world. The old world is where we Americans started, period. Probably angering some Americans by that, but I'm sorry, that's the truth. And I hope those who listen to this podcast agree, or at least come to agree with that statement at some point. Now, back to this peace treaty, it was significant, as I said, because it drew into question whether Malcolm actually submitted, use that word very purposely here, submitted to William or if he simply sued for an end of hostilities. I urge you not to overlook this point. This is kind of a major moment between the two countries, as I've already alluded to. I mean, the attitudes of the English and the Scottish toward the treaty are, on the surface, found in how they refer to the agreement. The Scottish call it simply the Treaty of Abernethy. The English, they call it the Abernethy Submission. So which one is it? Was it a treaty between two kingdoms to stop fighting? Or did Malcolm III actually submit to William again, thus putting the two kingdoms on a road to inevitable clashes and some pretty horrific disagreements? I'm definitely not trying to take sides here, but just looking at what I found out about, I I don't know. It, it, It doesn't look very good for Scotland. I hate to say it. And believe me, I'm all about smaller, independent polities existing in the world. The smaller the country, the smaller the government. The smaller the government, the more representative it is. The more representative it is, the more equal it tends to be. It's not a perfect idea, but it's just, that's my ideal. But according to the Abernethy Treaty, well, here's the thing. We don't exactly know. The document itself was actually lost to history leading many scholars, such as Ted Cowan, to raise concerns that its details were fabricated to bolster the English argument towards Scotland's submission to the English crown. What we've been told at various points over the last thousand years was that it was, in fact, more of a submission than an end to hostilities. Now, here are the details of it, though, that we know of, or at least that we've been told Malcolm gave one of his sons by his first wife, Ingeborg of Orkney, 
a boy named Duncan, to William's court as a hostage. Next, Malcolm would remove all of his men from Cumbria and Northumbria. With the exception of his wife, Queen Margaret, Malcolm was forced to expel forever Edgar the Etheling and all other English nobles from the Kingdom of Scotland. In exchange, William promised not to invade Scotland until the day that Malcolm chose to break the treaty. And finally, also, it's an interesting one, William provided Malcolm lands in Cumbria. These lands would remain a part of England, but Malcolm would own them, much in the way that every other lord in England and Normandy owned their land. This is pointed to as the first whispers of feudalism to touch the Scottish. So you can see now how that became a bone of contention, as Magnuson puts it. Well, Magnuson adds that, quote, Malcolm did not consider himself bound by it in any way, end quote. Now, if you think this was the end of Edgar Etheling, think again. Though kicked out of his longtime ally's court, he was hardly finished. He had grown up now, now 20 years old, and he still amassed a large enough following worth ink in the records. Edgar headed down to the continent, right under William's nose, just out of his reach. No, like, like mere miles from Normandy, I'm talking. Edgar sought the support of the French king, Philip I. Both Philip I and his predecessor have long wanted to see the fall of the Norman duke. So having someone like Edgar the Effling, though not exactly a friend of the French court, being a member of the House of Wessex, well, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Mark Morris, in his book, The Norman Conquest, points out the French king's offer to Edgar. By continuing his fight against William, Edgar would receive a castle, and I'm going to just absolutely butcher this, forgive me. He's going to receive a castle nearby at Montreuil-sur-Mer, quote unquote, as a base from which to harass Normandy's northern border. And the problem was Edgar didn't quite have the resources to pull the whole thing off. He needed more men and just a touch more wealth. So after just a year with King Philip uh, I as an honored guest writing letters and seeking support, he decided to do something a bit rash. The year was now 1074, and William was now dealing with the running of both his kingdom and his duchy. You know, the thing he'd tried to do for nine years now. Just when he thought things were dying off and recovering, he was in for a rude awakening. Living as long as he had had living the life he had, he knew very well the enemies he'd amassed along the way, but it seemed that, like, all at once they emerged from their secrecy and moved against him. The first part was that Edgar Etheling had arrived at the court of his brother-in-law, King Malcolm III of Scotland. But let's leave this here just for a moment, shall we? Now, let's take a moment to remember uh, that the title of the miniseries here is Everybody Hates Will. To be sure, the whole narrative here is to weave together all the disparate parts of who is, well, not a big fan of Williams by the mid to late 1070s. Now, in this episode, we're introducing a couple haters so far, Malcolm Canmore and Edgar Etheling, uh, before culminating in a rather important event to occur, 
This will all come together as this mini-series continues, so I ask for your patience on it. It's kind of long form uh, here. So far, Edgar Etheling and Malcolm Canmore have renewed their disdain for the English king. On Patreon episode 13, we were introduced to Folk the Black, Count of Anjou, and we reminded ourselves of both King Philip I of France and Robert the Frisian, Count of Flanders, who were always lurking in the background of William's successes. But now William had to deal with something that he hadn't had to deal with since he was jumping out of windows in the middle of the night as a boy. His own men turned against him. Okay, not all of them, but it certainly undermined the image cast upon his hold over his duchy. To set up our players for this part of the story, let's start with 1066. A man named Ralph served as the courtier to Edward II. Now, let's stop for a moment because who is this Ralph uh, is a bit of, of mystery. We have reason to believe he was Ralph the Staller, who has been mentioned on our podcast before. And as a reminder, a Staller in the 11th century England was akin to the constable in France. That is, he would have helped uh, the king out, or excuse me, the duke out, would have held a high position in the English court, one that privileged him among just about everybody else, save the earls. He would have participated in a great many meetings, even those of more secretive natures. In short, a Staller was highly trusted by the king. This position would have most likely garnered a boatload of loyalty as well. If Ralph was, in fact, Ralph the Staller, he could have still been plucked from other lands, lands such as Brittany, maybe. I say Brittany specifically because it was also rumored that Ralph the Staller was also referred to as Ralph the Breton. And Ralph the Breton was rumored to have been born to a woman of the bloodline of King Judicale of Brittany, who was kind of a big part of their history. Okay, Ralph the Staller, Ralph the Breton. What's going on here? Let's clarify. Ralph the Staller served under Edward II. Ralph the Breton is said to have been an Englishman of Breton descent who switched to William's side after the death of Edward. Pretty strong argument that these Ralphs, well, they're one and the same. One interesting detail is that it's said that Ralph the Staller was a cousin of Hereward the Wake as well, but really, that's neither here nor there in the grand scheme of things. That's the presumption we're going to go with, because I've yet to find definitive proof that they are not one and the same, this uh, Ralph the Staller and Ralph the Breton. If it's out there, please reach out to me and let me know. Um, with that ironed out, though, this makes what's about to come far more interesting. So, serving William in his invasion of England, he was rewarded, Ralph the Staller, Ralph the Breton, was rewarded for his service with the Earldom of East Anglia, since Earl Gerth Godwinson died at Hastings. By 1069, Ralph the Breton was dead, but his rise to one of the top positions in the now Norman-ruled England was a testament to his talent and loyalty toward William. As Mark Morris puts it, quote, the Bretons in general were not popular with the Normans, end quote. During the two to three years Ralph the Breton ruled over East Anglia, his son, Ralph the Gael, 
arrived to serve under his father. When Ralph Sr. died, Ralph Jr. took over the earldom. So Ralph de Gale became Earl of East Anglia. And here's where things start to go off the rails for William. Now, to introduce the other player here, do you remember William Fitzosborne? Of course, Fitzosborne was one of King William's oldest and most loyal friends. I mean, these two guys seem to have been brothers after decades of fighting alongside each other. Fitzosborne became the Earl of Herefordshire and controlled the areas along the Welsh marchlands out west. Fitzosborne oversaw the largest concentration of Norman castles in England being built in the 11th century, which is just a testament to how the Normans saw the fierce Welsh. Well, when Fitzosborne died at the Battle of Cassel in 1071, fighting against Queen Matilda's little brother, Robert the Frisian, for control over Flanders, explained in another Patreon episode, well, his son, Fitzosborne's son, Roger, became the second Earl of Herefordshire, and Roger was a part of the next generation of Norman nobility who, led by William's son Robert Curthose, were not exactly jiving with the old boomer's way of doing things. As of 1071, both Earl Roger of Herefordshire and Earl Ralph de Gale of East Anglia quickly cemented a firm alliance between the two earldoms. Notice, though, Picture a map of England. Herefordshire is west, bordering Wales, while East Anglia is straight across the island on the east, sporting a coastline with the North Sea. These two formed a very real threat to the stability of the kingdom at large. Should they amass enough power and decide to move on William, they could pinch the kingdom in half, and William still wasn't exactly 100% in control. It was looking better and better by the year, the English finally settling down a bit as a whole, but, but it was far from solid yet. The two earls not only formed a friendship, they also negotiated a marriage alliance. This was exactly what William didn't want. The good news, though, was that all marriages within a kingdom or a duchy had to have the king's or duke's presence in the negotiation as well as his ultimate approval. William had the veto in his back pocket. Now, in 1074, word came of the impending wedding. Now, that same year, jump back to Edgar Etheling, there in the Scottish court of King Malcolm III and his sister, Queen Margaret. This was the year that Edgar's story pretty much comes to an end. Well, at least with regards to the Norman conquest of his homeland. Don't worry, we'll see him again in about two decades. For now, though, this 20-year-old former king is on his way to solidify what he'll need to topple William once and for all. Now, with Scottish support, resources, money, along with King Philip I's offer of a castle and support, he should be able to split William's attention in half, one in the farthern reaches of northern England and the other down very close to home, his eastern and northern lands of Normandy. This split might be what it takes to cut the usurper in half. And Malcolm agreed at long last. Edgar Etheling may not be merely a former king much longer, and his countrymen and women might find themselves once again under the rule of one of their own. 
an actual member of the mighty and ancient House of Wessex, Anglo-Saxon England might once again be a reality. No doubt excited, Edgar quickly made his way back to France to share the great news with his new benefactor, Philip I. Sailing back to France required him to secretly travel across the unpleasant and, let's be honest, rather moody North Sea. And as he had no real home to speak of, remember, he wasn't supposed to have been in Scot- on Scottish soil, according to the Treaty of Abernethy. See, all of his possessions, his people, his treasures, everything sailed with him. And he happened to catch the North Sea in one of her frequent fits of fury. As history was wont to do to the Anglo-Saxons in the 11th century, he was shipwrecked. Both, you know, literally and figuratively, you could say. He lost everything. So many of his men, most of his ships, and nearly all of his possessions, including the wealth part. (laughs) What's more, there were many of Edgar's men who helped him make it to shore. These men who were loyal to Edgar to the death were systematically hunted down and slain, allowing the young man escape. But just barely. Days after leaving, as Morris says perfectly, he quote-unquote limped back to Scotland. Morris continued, quote, His brother-in-law, King Malcolm, suggested it was perhaps time for Edgar to make peace with William. End quote. Morris quotes the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles here, quote, And so indeed he did, and the king granted his request and sent for him. King Malcolm and his sister again gave countless treasures to him and to all his men, and sent him once more from their domain in great state. The sheriff of York came to meet him at Durham, and accompanied him the whole way, and arranged for food and fodder to be obtained for him in every castle they came to, until they came across the sea to the king. End quote. Not only has this kid pestered William for the better part of a decade, but he also endeared others, the English, the Scottish, the Danes, the French, to his cause of overthrowing William's rule in England. Now, William, known for his outrageous temper, was also from the continent, and feudal France was undergoing a slow but steady transformation from harsher relations toward their enemies to one based on what would become known as, in in a century or two, chivalry. We've mentioned William's tendency toward chivalry before in the podcast when we discussed his treatment toward the English, who either surrendered or succumbed to his rule, with the exception of the harrying of the North. And one incident we'll get to by the end of this episode. Shh, not yet, no spoilers. With that exception, by 1074, William could very easily be considered the first chivalric king of England. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, in fact, says that this young man, Edgar, was received, quote, unquote, with great ceremony, and then he remained at the king's court there and accepted such privileges as he granted him. See, William's a nice guy, right? But this did mark the moment that Edgar abandoned, officially abandoned, any hope whatsoever at taking back the throne of England. William offered Edgar lands around Hertfordshire, and that's where he would disappear for the next 11 years before he popped back up in the records. Like I said, we'll, 
we'll see Edgar's later years. Now I have to ask, what would have happened had Edgar not shipwrecked? If he had made it back to France, if he had manned the castle at, oh my gosh, I got to say it again, Montreux-sur-Mer. Yeah, we'll go with that. And been able to coordinate the harassment of Normandy's northern coasts and the Scottish-English invasion of Northumbria. With a bit of success, could he have garnered the support of another William Hayter, Count Robert the Frisian of Flanders? Would this have sparked new interest in attacking Maine by Anjou? See, a lot could have happened had Edgar not shipwrecked. But there's one more thing to return to that may have tipped the scales forever in Edgar's favor. And it all centered around that wedding. William, remember, had the power to, of the veto in his back pocket with regards to marriage between Earl Roger of Herefordshire and Earl Ralph de Gale of East Anglia's sister. Now, these two young men were of the generation that weren't exactly on board with the old way of doing things, and if William understood anything, he understood power dynamics. By the way, it's said that Earl Roger, that is, son of William Fitzosborne, Earl Roger of Herefordshire was very much a friend of Robert Curthose, so more of that generational divide. Now, William used his veto on the wedding and did not give permission for the two families to marry. However, these two young men wouldn't be swayed. They went forward with the wedding anyway. In the spring of 1075, Ralph de Gale of East Anglia married Roger's sister, Emma. The wedding itself was held in the Suffolk town of Exning, and it was in the feast that occurred after the vows that the two men cemented their bond and their plot to overthrow William. Morris writes, quote, precisely what their grievances were is impossible to say, end quote. William's veto on the marriage was certainly on the surface fair game as to a cause, but Morris mentions that the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, contrary to other sources, actually records that William allowed the marriage. Not sure what to make of that, though. As, as far as I can tell, it's the only mention of William's assent to the marriage, that is. He goes on to say, Morris does, however, that a much more plausible reason for revolt was due to the quote-unquote scope of their authority. Morris says immediately following his coronation, William puts his half-brother Odo of Bayeux and a couple others in charge of England, quote, with authority in each case stretching across several counties, end quote. But Morris continues, quote, yet when the king came to create his own earldoms a short while later, for example, at Shrewsbury or Chester, they were smaller affairs, based on a single shire, and thus closer in extent to a continental county, end quote. And here's what he's getting at. Quote, what appears to have happened in the case of both Roger and Ralph, he's referring to the younger earls here, is that when they succeeded to their father's estates, their scope of authority was much reduced, bringing their old super-earldoms into line with William's more modest model, end quote. Okay, to ground this theory in reality, we have a letter between Roger, son of William Fitzosborne, to Archbishop Lanfranc of Canterbury to point to. This letter clearly shows Roger's frustration toward William on this matter. So the plot was agreed to, but there was one more player in the plot to mention. Remember Earl Waltheoff of Northumbria? 
Remember, he was the son of the powerful Earl Seward in Northumbria back in the day. Now, Waltheof's reasons for joining should be pretty obvious. He was a Northumbrian by birth. He'd been looked over upon the death of his father as being too young to take the earldom, had fought and clawed his way back to relevance as he grew up, and finally he joined in some of the rebellions up north, including the massacre at Durham of Norman Knights and in the actions taken alongside Edgar Etheling, Hereward the Wake, and the Danes. Waltheof by this time needed no more reason to join, and Waltheof was a guest at the wedding in Exning as well. Morris writes, quote, According to Orderic, Roger and Ralph held out the prospect of a kingdom split three ways, with one man taking the crown and the other two ruling as dukes, an altogether unlikely story given that we know from the other sources that the plotters had appealed to help from the Danes. Yet Orderic is surely correct to assume that the point of the rebellion was to get rid of William. End quote. Now here's the thing, though. Among the three plotters, one was a bit weak in the knees about the whole thing. And he was the last to join. Waltheof walked away from Exning, probably rethinking the whole thing based on what William has done over the previous decade. I mean, the man seemed invincible. John of Worcester reveals that it was Earl Waltheof who ratted out Roger and Ralph to Archbishop Lanfranc. From here, we see an inordinate number of correspondences from Lanfranc to Earl Roger of Herefordshire, but to no avail. Nothing the powerful archbishop said budged the resolve of the young Earl. Lanfranc, it seems, tried everything within his power, even promising to review the matter with William and find a peaceful end to the situation. But one letter from Lanfranc finally read this, quote, I grieve more than I can say, at the news I hear from you, end quote. Cementing the idea that Roger wasn't having any of it. Rebellion was imminent. The revolt erupted later that year in 1075. Morris writes, quote, Although often ranked with earlier rebellions against the conqueror, this revolt differed in the important aspect that its leaders were French rather than English, end quote. And this point cannot be overlooked. It's also a testament to the quote-unquote extensive Anglo-Norman cooperation a mere decade into the conquest. Now, Roger led his forces east towards central England with the plan to meet up with Ralph's East Anglian forces heading west, thus the pincher move mentioned earlier. However, Morris draws from John of Worcester, who explained that Roger's forces were halted before reaching the River Severn, Quote, by armies under the command of Bishop Wolfston of Worcester and Abbot Ethelwig of Evesham. As for Ralph, his forces were frustrated by the whole, excuse me, the whole way by both the Normans guarding the castles and the English themselves taking up arms against them. While John of Worcester talks about a large Anglo-Norman force meeting Ralph at Cambridge, or Derrick firmly states that actual skirmishes took place near Fawden, or Derrick called this force a quote-unquote an English army, and Morris's quote. Morris wraps it up perfectly with, quote, and so the ill-conceived revolt of the earls was thwarted, end quote. And that was how history would forever remember this little event, the revolt of the earls, of 1075. Ralph hopped a ship at Norfolk 
and escaped to Brittany. Morris writes, quote, leaving his new wife and his Breton followers to defend the mighty royal castle at Norwich, end quote. And that castle is mighty, <laughs> by the way. After a few months, Emma was allowed to head to Brittany with some of her garrison, as long as she and her husband were never to return to England for as long as they lived. Now, Morris quotes Lanfranc here from a letter the Archbishop wrote to William. Quote, unquote, Glory be to God on high. Your kingdom has been purged of its Breton filth. The thing is, William wasn't even in England while all this went down. It seems that the English had simply had enough of all the fighting and dying and, you know, famine. They were just, they were just done with it. All of it. Now imagine if Edgar Etheling was still around and able to do what was mentioned earlier. Would England have had the resources to stop the revolt? Would they have seen everybody turning on William and then join the revolt instead of thwarting it? What about this? What if by chance the Danes were to show up? Because that's exactly what happened, believe it or not. Morris quotes Lanfranc here in a letter between the Archbishop and the Bishop of Durham in the fall of 1075. Quote, The Danes are indeed coming, so fortify your castle with men, weapons, and stores. Be ready. End quote. Morris continues, quote, But this too turned out to be a passing storm. A fleet of 200 Danish ships in due course arrived, but, says the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, Quote, they dared not fight with King William, end quote, and contented themselves with plundering York before returning home. And end Morris's quote. Man, <laughs> poor York. Seriously, those people couldn't catch a break in the 1070s, could they? The aftermath of the revolt of the Earls was pretty straightforward. Roger of Herefordshire, son of his BFF William Fitzosborne, was imprisoned for the rest of his life. Well, Kind of. However, in 1087, upon the death of the Conqueror, he was released. We don't exactly know when, where, and how Roger de Bertoul, uh, as he was also known, died. We don't know how he died. We know Ralph de Gale escaped back to Brittany. Okay, so that left Earl Wolfioth of Northumbria, the man who foiled the plot to begin with. No one really knew what to do with Wolfioth at the time. He was an earl, which offered him a smidge more legitimacy and leniency. And don't forget that Waltheof was also married to William's niece, making him kin to the king. However, he was already a thorn in, the William's, in William's side, and he just joined a rebellion against him. Even if he thwarted it, it didn't matter. He agreed to it, and he had already been such a big problem. Then again, Waltheof again, ratted out the conspirators and didn't participate. He didn't even participate in the actual military actions that took place. Now, Lanfranc had advised Waltheof to be proactive, to sail to Normandy, to seek forgiveness from William in person, right? Man up a little bit. However, William was at Winchester by the time he was ready to leave, so Waltheof sought him out there. William immediately imprisoned Waltheof in Winchester in late 1075. Now, whatever leniency Waltheof was hoping for dissipated after just six months when, Morris writes, quote, judgment was finally passed on Waltheof, who was found to be as guilty as any of the other conspirators, 
end quote. Unlike Edgar Etheling and Roger de Bretuis, man, I, I know I'm just <laughs> butchering that. I'll just go back to uh, son of William Fitzosborne, the former Earl Roger of Herefordshire. How about that? Roger. Waltheof, unlike Edgar and Roger, would suffer a rather unique fate. Or Derek explains why. Roger was a Norman. Thus, William judged him based on Norman laws and customs. Waltheof was English, and he was not given such treatment. William in years past had done, the, had done his homework on English laws and customs, and in such situations, folks like Waltheof were met with a much, much darker fate. Morris writes, quote, On the morning of May 31st, 1076, while the city's other inhabitants were still asleep, the Earl, that is Waltheof, was led out of Winchester to the top of St. Giles Hill and beheaded, end quote. Waltheof, son of Seward of Northumbria, was the only English nobleman who died from William's ruling while in custody after a surrender. This was the only instance that I found so far of William the Conqueror breaking from his chivalric customs and killing an Englishman during a time of peace. In addition to this, Waltheof was the last Anglo-Saxon nobleman with any real power in England the last vestment of a truly ancient kingdom. The collapse of the revolt of the earls in 1075 marked the end of any serious threat to William's rule in England. Now, the English could settle in truly and begin to find ways to coexist with their foreign neighbors and rulers. This won't be the last we hear of Ralph de Gale either, but that's a story for another time. Those who have hated William have either succumbed to his rule or succumbed to his sword. Either way, William had emerged victorious. Except for one. One person still held a furnace full of hatred for the conqueror. And to be honest, he might be the one person who could truly undermine William's power. Matilda, in fact, loved this person dearly. This person's name was Robert. Robert Kurthose. Until next time.